Welcome to the Unknown Friends Podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm so glad you've joined me today. From late July to the end of August, we are taking a short break from our usual weekly book reviews, and instead I'm reading aloud the complete novel Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton. If you haven't yet listened to my introduction to Man Alive and my brief analysis of the book's characters and themes, check out my most recent book review, episode 26 of season 2 from July 14th. Today's episode is an unabridged recording of the first half of Man Alive chapter 5, but be aware that my narration occasionally deviates from the original text when I encounter profanity or offensive language. This happens rarely, but I am omitting just a couple of words in this chapter, since I'm not comfortable using that kind of language. That said, I hope you thoroughly enjoy this next chapter of Man Alive. Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton Chapter 5 The Allegorical Practical Joker The criminal specialist who had come with Dr. Warner was a somewhat more urbane and even dapper figure than he had appeared when clutching the railings and craning his neck into the garden. He even looked comparatively young when he took his hat off, having fair hair parted in the middle and carefully curled on each side, and lively movements, especially of the hands. He had a dandified monocle slung round his neck by a broad black ribbon, and a big bow tie, as if a big American moth had alighted on him. His dress and gestures were bright enough for a boy's. It was only when you looked at the fishbone face that you beheld something acrid and old. His manners were excellent, though hardly English, and he had two half-conscious tricks by which people who only met him once remembered him. One was a trick of closing his eyes when he wished to be particularly polite. The other was one of lifting his joined thumb and forefinger in the air, as if holding a pinch of snuff, when he was hesitating or hovering over a word. But those who were longer in his company tended to forget these oddities in the stream of his quaint and solemn conversation and really singular views. "'Miss Hunt,' said Dr. Warner, "'this is Dr. Cyrus Pym.' Dr. Cyrus Pym shut his eyes during the introduction, rather as if he were playing fair in some child's game, and gave a prompt little bow which somehow suddenly revealed him as a citizen of the United States. "'Dr. Cyrus Pym,' continued Warner, Dr. Pym shut his eyes again, "'is perhaps the first criminological expert of America. We are very fortunate to be able to consult with him in this extraordinary case.' "'I can't make head or tail of anything,' said Rosamond. How can poor Mr. Smith be so dreadful as he is by your account? Or by your telegram, said Herbert Warner, smiling. Oh, you don't understand, cried the girl impatiently. Why, he's done us all more good than going to church. I think I can explain to the young lady, said Dr. Cyrus Pym. This criminal, or maniac, Smith, is a very genius of evil, and has a method of his own, 
a method of the most daring ingenuity. He is popular wherever he goes, for he invades every house as an uproarious child. People are getting suspicious of all the respectable disguises for a scoundrel, so he always uses the disguise of, what shall I say, the bohemian, the blameless bohemian. He always carries people off their feet. People are used to the mask of conventional good conduct. He goes in for eccentric good nature. You expect a Don Juan to dress up as a solemn and solid Spanish merchant, but you're not prepared when he dresses up as Don Quixote. You expect a humbug to behave like Sir Charles Grandison, because, with all respect, Miss Hunt, for the deep, tear-moving tenderness of Samuel Richardson, Sir Charles Grandison so often behaved like a humbug. But no real red-blooded citizen is quite ready for a humbug that models himself not on Sir Charles Grandison, but on Sir Roger de Coverley. Setting up to be a good man a little cracked is a new criminal incognito, Miss Hunt. It's been a great notion, and uncommonly successful. But its success just makes it mighty cruel. I can't forgive Dick Turpin if he impersonates Dr. Busby. I can't forgive him when he impersonates Dr. Johnson. The saint with a towel loose is a bit too sacred, I guess, to be parodied. But how do you know, cried Rosamond desperately, that Mr. Smith is a known criminal? I collated all the documents, said the American, when my friend Warner knocked me up on receipt of your cable. It is my professional affair to know these facts, Miss Hunt and there's no more doubt about them than about the Bradshaw down at the depot. This man has hitherto escaped the law through his admirable affectations of infancy or insanity. But I myself, as a specialist, have privately authenticated notes of some 18 or 20 crimes attempted or achieved in this manner. He comes to houses as he has to this and gets a grand popularity. He makes things go. They do go. When he's gone, the things are gone. Gone, Miss Hunt, gone. A man's life or a man's spoons or more often a woman. I assure you I have all the memoranda. I have seen them, said Warner solidly. I can assure you that all this is correct. The most unmanly aspect, according to my feelings, went on the American doctor, is this perpetual deception of innocent women by a wild simulation of innocence. From almost every house where this great imaginative devil has been, he has taken some poor girl away with him. Some say he's got a hypnotic eye with his other queer features, and that they go like automata. What's become of all these poor girls, nobody knows. Murdered, I dare say. For we've lots of instances, besides this one, of his turning his hand to murder, though none ever brought him under the law. Anyhow, our most modern methods of research can't find any trace of the wretched women. 
It's when I think of them that I am really moved, Miss Hunt. And I've really nothing else to say just now except what Dr. Warner has said. Quite so, said Warner with a smile that seemed molded in marble. That we all have to thank you very much for that telegram. The little Yankee scientist had been speaking with such evident sincerity that one forgot the tricks of his voice and manner, the falling eyelids, the rising intonation, and the poised finger and thumb, which were at other times a little comic. It was not so much that he was cleverer than Warner. Perhaps he was not so clever, though he was more celebrated. But he had what Warner never had, a fresh and unaffected seriousness, the great American virtue of simplicity. Rosamond knitted her brows and looked gloomily toward the darkening house that contained the dark prodigy. Broad daylight still endured, but it had already changed from gold to silver and was changing from silver to gray. The long, plumy shadows of the one or two trees in the garden faded more and more upon a dead background of dusk. In the sharpest and deepest shadow, which was the entrance to the house by the big French windows, Rosamond could watch a hurried consultation between Inglewood, who was still left in charge of the mysterious captive, and Diana, who had moved to his assistance from without. After a few minutes and gestures, they went inside shutting the glass doors upon the garden, and the garden seemed to grow grayer still. The American gentleman named Pym seemed to be turning and on the move in the same direction, but before he started he spoke to Rosamond with a flash of that guileless tact which redeemed much of his childish vanity, and with something of that spontaneous poetry which made it difficult, pedantic as he was, to call him a pedant. "'I'm very sorry, Miss Hunt,' he said. "'But Dr. Warner and I, as two qualified practitioners, "'had better take Mr. Smith away in that cab. "'And the less said about it, the better. "'Don't you agitate yourself, Miss Hunt. "'You've just got to think that we're taking away a monstrosity. "'Something that oughtn't to be at all. "'Something like one of those gods in your Britannic museum.' All wings and beards and legs and eyes and no shape. That's what Smith is, and you shall soon be quit of him. He had already taken a step towards the house, and Warner was about to follow him when the glass doors were opened again, and Diana Duke came out with more than her usual quickness across the lawn. Her face was a quiver with worry and excitement, and her dark, earnest eyes fixed only on the other girl. "'Rosamond!' she cried in despair. "'What shall I do with her?' "'With her?' cried Miss Hunt, with a violent jump. "'Oh, he isn't a woman, too, is he?' "'No, no, no,' said Dr. Pims soothingly, as if in common fairness. "'A woman? No, really, he is not so bad as that.' "'I mean your friend Mary Gray,' retorted Diana with equal tartness." What on earth am I to do with her? How can we tell her about Smith, you mean? Answered Rosamond, her face at once clouded and softening. Yes, it will be pretty painful. But I have told her, exploded Diana with more than her congenital exasperation. I have told her, and she doesn't seem to mind. 
She still says she's going away with Smith in that cab. But it's impossible, ejaculated Rosamond. Why, Mary is really religious. She... She stopped, in time to realize that Mary Gray was comparatively close to her on the lawn. Her quiet companion had come down very quietly into the garden, but dressed very decisively for travel. She had a neat but very ancient tam on her head, and was pulling some rather threadbare gray gloves onto her hands. Yet the two tints fitted excellently with her heavy copper-colored hair, the more excellently for the touch of shabbiness. For a woman's clothes never suit her so well as when they seem to suit her by accident. But in this case the woman had a quality yet more unique and attractive. In such gray hours, when the sun is sunk and the skies are already sad, it will often happen that one reflection at some occasional angle will cause to linger the last of the light. A scrap of window, a scrap of water, a scrap of looking-glass will be full of the fire that is lost to all the rest of the earth. The quaint, almost triangular face of Mary Gray was like some triangular piece of mirror that could still repeat the splendor of hours before. Mary, though she was always graceful, could never before have properly been called beautiful. And yet her happiness, amid all that misery, was so beautiful as to make a man catch his breath. "'Oh, Diana!' cried Rosamond in a lower voice and altering her phrase. "'But how did you tell her?' "'It is quite easy to tell her,' answered Diana somberly. "'It makes no impression at all.' "'I'm afraid I've kept everything waiting,' said Mary Gray apologetically. "'And now we must really say good-bye. "'Innocent is taking me to his aunt's over at Hampstead, "'and I'm afraid she goes to bed early.' Her words were quite casual and practical, but there was a sort of sleepy light in her eyes that was more baffling than darkness. She was like one speaking absently, with her eye on some very distant object. "'Mary, Mary!' cried Rosamond, almost breaking down. "'I'm so sorry about it, but the thing can't be at all. We—we have found out all about Mr. Smith.' "'All?' repeated Mary, with a low and curious intonation. Why, that must be awfully exciting. There was no noise for an instant, and no motion except that the silent Michael Moon, leaning on the gate, lifted his head, as it might be to listen. Then, Rosamond remaining speechless, Dr. Pym came to her rescue in a definite way. "'To begin with,' he said, this man Smith is constantly attempting murder. The warden of Breakspear College? I know, said Mary, with a vague but radiant smile. Innocent told me. I can't say what he told you, replied Pym quickly, but I'm very much afraid it wasn't true. The plain truth is that the man's stained with every known human crime. I assure you I have all the documents. I have evidence of his committing burglary, signed by a most eminent English curate. I have... Oh, but there were two curates, cried Mary with a certain gentle eagerness. That was what made it so much funnier. The darkened glass doors of the house opened once more, and Inglewood appeared for an instant, making a sort of signal. 
The American doctor bowed, the English doctor did not, but they both set out stolidly towards the house. No one else moved, not even Michael hanging on the gate. But the back of his head and shoulders had still an indescribable indication that he was listening to every word. "'But don't you understand, Mary?' cried Rosamond in despair. "'Don't you know that awful things have happened, even before our very eyes?' I should have thought you would have heard the revolver shots upstairs. Yes, I heard the shots, said Mary, almost brightly. But I was busy packing just then, and Innocent had told me he was going to shoot at Dr. Warner, so it wasn't worthwhile to come down. Oh, I don't understand what you mean, cried Rosamond Hunt, stamping. But you must and shall understand what I mean. I don't care how cruelly I put it if only I can save you. I mean that your innocent Smith is the most awfully wicked man in the world. He has sent bullets at lots of other men, and gone off in cabs with lots of other women, and he seems to have killed the women too, for nobody can find them. He is really rather naughty sometimes, said Mary Gray, laughing softly as she buttoned her old gray gloves. Oh, this is really mesmerism or something! said Rosamond, and burst into tears. At the same moment, the two black-clad doctors appeared out of the house with their great, green-clad captive between them. He made no resistance, but was still laughing in a groggy and half-witted style. Arthur Inglewood followed in the rear, a dark and red study in the last shades of distress and shame. In this black, funereal, and painfully realistic style, the exit from Beacon House was made by a man whose entrance a day before had been affected by the happy leaping of a wall and the hilarious climbing of a tree. No one moved of the groups in the garden except Mary Gray, who stepped forward quite naturally, calling out, "'Are you ready, Innocent? Our cab's been waiting such a long time.' "'Ladies and gentlemen,' said Dr. Warner firmly, I must insist on asking this lady to stand aside. We shall have trouble enough as it is, with the three of us in a cab. But it is our cab, persisted Mary. Why, there is Innocent's yellow bag on the top of it. Stand aside, repeated Warner roughly. And you, Mr. Moon, please be so obliging as to move a moment. Come, come. The sooner this ugly business is over, the better. And how can we open the gate if you will keep leaning on it? Michael Moon looked at his long, lean forefinger, and seemed to consider and reconsider this argument. Yes, he said at last. But how can I lean on this gate if you keep on opening it? Oh, get out of the way, cried Warner almost good-humouredly. You can lean on the gate any time. No, said Moon reflectively. Seldom the time and the place and the blue gate altogether. And it all depends whether you come of an old country family. My ancestors leaned on gates before anyone had discovered how to open them. Michael, cried Arthur Inglewood in a kind of agony. Are you going to get out of the way? Why, no, I think not, said Michael, after some meditation, and swung himself slowly round so that he confronted the company, 
while still in a lounging attitude occupying the path. Hello, he called out suddenly. What are you doing to Mr. Smith? Taking him away, answered Warner shortly, to be examined. Matriculation? asked Moon brightly. By a magistrate, said the other curtly. And what other magistrate, cried Michael, raising his voice, dares to try what befell on this free soil, save only the ancient and independent Dukes of Beacon? What other court dares to try one of our company, save only the High Court of Beacon? Have you forgotten that only this afternoon we flew the flag of independence and severed ourselves from all the nations of the earth? "'Michael!' cried Rosamond, wringing her hands. "'How can you stand there talking nonsense? "'Why, you saw the dreadful thing yourself. "'You were there when he went mad. "'It was you that helped the doctor up "'when he fell over the flower-pot.' "'And the High Court of Beacon,' replied Moon with hauteur, "'has special powers in all cases concerning lunatics, "'flower-pots, and doctors who fall down in gardens.' It's in our very first charter from Edward I. See Medicus Quisquam in Horto Prostratus. Out of the way, cried Warner with a sudden fury, or we will force you out of it. What? cried Michael Moon with a cry of hilarious fierceness. Shall I die in defense of this sacred pale? Will you paint these blue railings red with my gore? and he laid hold of one of the blue spikes behind him. As Inglewood had noticed earlier in the evening, the railing was loose and crooked at this place, and the painted iron staff and spearhead came away in Michael's hand as he shook it. "'See!' he cried, brandishing this broken javelin in the air. "'The very lances round Beacon Tower leap from their places to defend it. Ah, in such a place and hour it is a fine thing to die alone!' and in a voice like a drum he rolled the noble lines of Ronsard. Ou pour l'honneur de Dieu, ou pour le droit de mon prince, nombre, poitrine ouverte, au bord de mon province. Sakes alive, said the American gentleman, almost in an awed tone. Then he added, Are there two maniacs here? No, there are five, thundered Moon. "'Smith and I are the only sane people left.' "'Michael!' cried Rosamond. "'Michael, what does it mean?' "'It means bosh!' roared Michael, and slung his painted spear hurtling to the other end of the garden. "'It means that doctors are bosh, and criminology is bosh, and Americans are bosh. Much more bosh than our court of beacon. "'It means, you fatheads!' that innocent Smith is no more mad or bad than the bird on that tree. But, my dear Moon, began Inglewood in his modest manner, these gentlemen... On the word of two doctors, exploded Moon again, without listening to anybody else. Shut up in a private hell on the word of two doctors. And such doctors. Oh, my hat. Look at em. Do just look at em. Would you read a book, or buy a dog, or go to a hotel on the advice of twenty such? My people came from Ireland, and were Catholics. 
What would you say if I called a man wicked on the word of two priests? But it isn't only their word, Michael, reasoned Rosamond. They've got evidence, too. Have you looked at it? asked Moon. No, said Rosamond, with a sort of faint surprise. These gentlemen are in charge of it. And of everything else, it seems to me, said Michael. Why, you haven't even had the decency to consult Mrs. Duke. Oh, that's no use, said Diana in an undertone to Rosamond. Auntie can't say boo to a goose. I am glad to hear it, answered Michael. For with such a flock of geese to say it to, the horrid expletive might be constantly on her lips. For my part, I simply refuse to let things be done in this light and airy style. I appeal to Mrs. Duke. It's her house. Mrs. Duke, repeated Inglewood doubtfully. Yes, Mrs. Duke, said Michael firmly, commonly called the Iron Duke. If you ask Auntie, said Diana quietly, she'll only be for doing nothing at all. Her only idea is to hush things up or to let things slide. That just suits her. Yes, replied Michael Moon, and as it happens, it just suits all of us. You are impatient with your elders, Miss Duke. But when you are as old yourself, you will know what Napoleon knew, that half one's letters answer themselves if you can only refrain from the fleshly appetite of answering them. He was still lounging in the same absurd attitude, with his elbow on the grate, but his voice had altered abruptly for the third time. Just as it had changed from the mock heroic to the humanly indignant, it now changed to the airy incisiveness of a lawyer giving good legal advice. "'It isn't only your aunt who wants to keep this quiet if she can,' he said. "'We all want to keep it quiet if we can. Look at the large facts, the big bones of the case. I believe those scientific gentlemen have made a highly scientific mistake. I believe Smith is as blameless as a buttercup.' I admit buttercups don't often let off loaded pistols in private houses. I admit there is something demanding explanation. But I am morally certain there's some blunder, or some joke, or some allegory, or some accident behind all this. Well, suppose I'm wrong. We've disarmed him. We're five men to hold him. He may as well go to a lockup later on as now. But suppose there's even a chance of my being right. Is it anybody's interest here to wash this linen in public? Come, I'll take each of you in order. Once take Smith outside that gate, and you take him into the front page of the evening papers. I know, I've written the front page myself. Miss Duke, do you or your aunt want a sort of notice stuck up over your boarding house? Doctors shot here? No, no. Doctors are rubbish, as I said, but you don't want the rubbish shot here. Arthur, suppose I am right, or suppose I am wrong. Smith has appeared as an old schoolfellow of yours. Mark my words, if he is proved guilty, the organs of public opinion will say you introduced him. If he's proved innocent, they will say you helped to collar him. Rosamond, my dear, suppose I am right or wrong. If he's proved guilty, they'll say you engaged your companion to him. If he's proved innocent, they'll print that telegram. I know the organs. Curse them. He stopped an instant, 
for this rapid rationalism left him more breathless than had either his theatrical or his real denunciation. But he was plainly in earnest, as well as positive and lucid, as was proved by his proceeding quickly the moment he had found his breath. "'It is just the same,' he cried, "'with our medical friends. You will say that Dr. Warner has a grievance. I agree.' but does he want specially to be snapshotted by all the journalists, prostratus in horto? It was no fault of his, but the scene was not very dignified even for him. He must have justice, but does he want to ask for justice, not only on his knees, but on his hands and knees? Does he want to enter the court of justice on all fours? Doctors are not allowed to advertise." and I'm sure no doctor wants to advertise himself as looking like that. And even for our American guest, the interest is the same. Let us suppose that he has conclusive documents. Let us assume that he has revelations really worth reading. Well, in a legal inquiry, or a medical inquiry for that matter, ten to one he won't be allowed to read them. He'll be tripped up every two or three minutes with some tangle of old rules. A man can't tell the truth in public nowadays. But he can still tell it in private. He can tell it inside that house. That concludes today's chapter reading. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me, my podcast, and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks for listening, and tune in again this Saturday, August 7th, for Chapter 5, Part 2.